strategies now being employed by the corrupt corporate media. Number one, protect Joe Biden. And the way you protect him is to ignore anything that makes him look bad. So Afghanistan shook a lot of people up in the progressive left. And they went, holy you know what, this could be a catastrophe. So the editorial decision has been made. We're not going to report it. And we documented that on last night's No Spin News. And if you did not see that, I hope you watch that. Because we, we brought in, you know, this is a major story. Networks don't cover it. Here's another one. Networks don't cover it. If you are a BillOReilly.com premium member or concierge member, you can access No Spin News anytime you want and all the back uh, issues. But that last night was an important program. Um, so you didn't get the heckled. What you are starting to see, and this is another by design, all right, you have to understand that these network news agencies, ABC, CBS, NBC, and to the extension of CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, in the morning, about 8 o'clock, they have editorial meetings, and they basically give out, quote-unquote, guidance to producers and correspondents. Here's what pretty much you're going to do. It's not like a guy like me comes in and says, no, I'm going to do what I think the audience uh, would like to hear in the sense that it would inform them. That's what I did for 20 years plus at Fox News. Nobody ever told me, here's what you do tonight on your rally factor, ever, because I knew I would not sit for it. But that's a different era now. So the word has gone out to the correspondents. We have to start to rebuild President Biden's image. And the first shot came from Disney, ABC News, The View. Go. Well, it was it was a difficult withdrawal, but let's not forget that 6,000 American citizens and more than 124,000 civilians were evacuated, in fact. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, uh, during the collapse of Saigon in 1975, they compare it to that. Uh, the U.S. evacuated just 7,000 people. This is a much bigger evacuation. This, I believe that in six months, people will say about this war, Biden got us out of the longest war that Americans ever had. Now, that's interesting because Behar had those stats provided by progressive people in front of her and was told, this is what you say. And she's more than happy to say it because she hates conservatives and Republicans. And I mean that literally. She despises them. It's a character disorder that she has. So the progressive people who run her every day, and this, again, this is ABC News. This is Disney Company, and they know it. And, um, you know, so you mark my words, and I'll document it on a daily basis, how this uh, rehab of Joe Biden is coming along. All right, let's get to COVID. And I have a final thought where I got a letter from an uh, anti-vaxxer. <laughs> you got to hear this letter. It attacks me, all right? And that's the final thought of the day, so I hope you hang tough. All right, so kids uh, and COVID is the big story now with COVID, all right? Uh, 252,000 children have tested positive for COVID in the past week. One week, beginning of school, 250 through American children, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, okay? 
Now, by comparison, in the last week in school in June, 8,400 cases COVID among kids. So it's gone from 8,400 to 252,000 week from June to September. This is because of that Delta variant, which is so contagious. It's just wiping out. And children under 12 are not getting the vaccination because it has not been approved by the federal government. All right. So if you're 12 and under, you don't get vaxxed. And only 15 percent of Americans age 12 to 18 are vaxxed. So you can see what a colossal problem this is in the nation's schools. Now, a new poll, and I do not believe this poll, but again, I report this to you because it is public information and I'm not blacking out anything, but I don't believe this poll, so you know. It's done by Axios, which is a left-wing internet site, and it says, um, thinking now about your oldest child, age 5 to 17, do you support or oppose mandates requiring students and staff to wear masks at your child's school. Now, why would they throw the word oldest child? It doesn't, all of this stuff is really dubious. So 59% of those who answered this poll and more than 12,000, no, 10,000 adults did. 59% of the 10,000 answered the poll say we support mask mandates in school. That's way too high. Uh, support mask mandates for unvaccinated students and staff, 10%. Oppose all mask mandates, 30%. I think it's more like 60-40 myself. 60% of Americans would or do support masks being worn in school, and 40 opposed. My opinion, I could be wrong. Okay, so the more kids that get sick, the more power the progressives have to impose COVID mandates. So I'm not going to say they're rooting for kids to get sick, but it benefits that wing. There's no doubt about it. And I'm following this story very, very closely. The other story uh, that's getting some attention is the Fauci sending money to Wuhan lab story. Now, as you know, if you watch me, I don't have any use for Fauci at all. I think he's a political hack. I thought he was a hack under Trump. I think he's a hack under Biden. I think if he moved to uh, Lithuania, he'd still be a hack. That's just my uh, assessment of him. Now, you have to follow me closely here because this is misreported everywhere. But you'll get the truth from me, your pal. Anthony Fauci heads up, okay, the, let me get this great. He heads up the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID. All right. He's the director and he's been there forever. Again, it's the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. They gave the Wuhan lab in China $7 million. That thing. Fauci says that was just for general research. Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, and others say no. Fauci knew that the Wuhan lab was 
doing experiments on gain-of-function research. Now listen, I'm going to go very slow. This is very important. Gain-of-function research, which nobody understands, is simple. It is a program that wants to take viruses and increase their transmissibility in weapon form. All the major powers do it. We do it here in America. We have virus called biological warfare. All right. China was doing that in the Wuhan lab. Gain of function. Fauci says, we didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I'm not sure it even happened. This is Fauci's line. Now, we can't prove that Fauci knew it. Nobody can prove it. So when Rand Paul goes, I was a liar. He lies, lies, lies. He should have known it. Fauci should have known it. But did he know it? He's going to say, I didn't know it. Or it didn't happen. And the Chinese are never going to admit it. Ever going to admit it. So you're never going to get 100% certainty on the Fauci story. What's important for you to know is that Fauci is not trustworthy. That's it. When he comes on, the thumb, see this thumb? Clicks. And he goes off. Because I don't believe anything the man says. Because he has no credibility. All right, 9-11 week. So Saturday is the 20th anniversary, 9-11 terrorist attack. President Biden and the First Lady are going to go to all three sites. All right, they're going to come to New York City, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and the Pentagon, the three attack sites. Kamala Harris, the Vice President, going to Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, in New York City, along with the President and First Lady, will be Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. They will be here. George W. Bush is going to speak in Pennsylvania at Shanksville. Okay, that's the overarch of the Saturday situation. But I predict more people will watch college football than the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. You'll remember Bo Bergdahl, the deserter, the terrible person who uh, left his unit in Afghanistan and went and surrendered to the Taliban and did all kinds of terrible things. Well, you'll remember that he was exchanged in 2014. I covered this extensively on the O'Reilly Factor. I talk about it with Hannity today on a radio program. And he was exchanged for Taliban prisoners, four of whom are now in the upper echelons of running Afghanistan. So Barack Obama made the trade. Bergdahl came back. Okay, we haven't heard much from him. Um, he's gone underground now. Um, and Taliban went back to Afghanistan. Four of them now run the show there, just so you know. Um, but in Afghanistan, it is the two most important points are this. Now we are in a worse situation than we were 20 years ago vis-a-vis -vis that country. Taliban more powerful now than they were 20 years ago. However, we had to do it because Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden were there and planning more terror attacks on the United States. We had to disrupt that. The Taliban would not cooperate. We had to remove them. We had to hunt down and kill bin Laden, which we did. Okay, so we had to do it. Now, did we have to stay for 20 years and try to make it a country full of democracy and modern uh, policies? No, we didn't have to do it. 
We tried it. It did not work. But we had to go there. So everybody knows. Joining us now is Monica Crowley. I've known Monica for decades, and uh, she's a very smart woman. Uh, she just left the job uh, last January as former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Public Affairs under the Trump administration. Uh, she joins us from New York City. So, Monica, 9-11, where were you? What were you doing? So, on September 11, 2001, Bill, I was in New York City in this very apartment, and I was trying to get some exercise in in the morning, so I was working out on my stationary bike, watching Fox News, watching an airplane, small airplane, fly into the first World Trade Center building. When the second one hit, it was pretty clear that we were under terrorist attack. Okay, so your reaction then, and did you have any participation in the 9-11 thing here in New York City? Well, I was here and I remember that day so clearly, Bill, even though it was 20 years ago. And I remember going to the grocery store almost in a panic because I don't think anybody's mind was working really clearly that day because nobody really knew what was what was happening. Um, and I remember going to the grocery store and the grocery store here in Manhattan had televisions set up on every aisle and people were just willy-nilly grabbing things off of the shelf. And then I remember coming home from that and sitting tight for about seven days straight, just glued to the television set, just like every other American and so many others around the world. Okay. And then subsequently, you were on my program a number of times. We talked about uh, worldwide terrorism. You know the world pretty well. Um, and um, now we have, as I said, a worse situation 20 years later in Afghanistan. A, would you agree with that? And B, if you were president, how would you have handled the Afghan situation? Well, you know, Bill, it wasn't a question of whether or not we should get out. I think the American people, by and large, agreed that 20 years was more than enough. President Trump made that a staple of his 2016 and 2020 campaign, saying we're going to end these forever wars, including Iraq and Afghanistan. So the question was how we do it. And having worked with President Nixon during the last years of his life, Bill, he and I talked about how we ended Vietnam and the fall of Saigon. And I actually wrote a column about this recently, comparing the fall of Saigon to the fall of Kabul. The question is, how you leave matters as much, if not more, how you fight the war. And so what we have seen is an absolute catastrophic failure on the part of the Biden administration. Trump left a pretty good conditions-based plan for our withdrawal, and Joe Biden threw it out the window and put everything uh, completely backwards. And now we're in a situation, as you point out, where not just the Taliban is stronger than they were 20 years ago, but we're looking at ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Iran and China, all beneficiaries of the way we have left Afghanistan, they are now all stronger and emboldened as a result of this catastrophic withdrawal. Okay, but give me one specific that you would have done differently than Biden did. Well, the first thing you do is you make sure that if you are going to fully withdraw and not leave a modest force in place. I would have argued to President Trump to leave the 2,500 troops in place. It was a modest commitment bill that had stabilized Afghanistan and kept the Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda and the Chinese all at bay. 
So number one, I would have kept that residual force. Number two, if you're going to proceed with the withdrawal to that level, then you make sure you do it in a logical order. So you do the American civilians first, our Afghan allies that have been clearly vetted uh, they, those goes, go next, then you withdraw all of our military material, all of our weapons, and then you remove the military. You don't do the opposite, right. which is what Joe Biden okay. did. And, yeah, and, and, I, and also Trump, one last thing, one last yeah, thing, I, Bill, and this is critical. You maintain the Bagram Air Base. You do not you have give that, that up. Right. I, I think Trump would have done that. I can't speak to him. I will get it out of him in the history shows, because Afghanistan obviously going to be a big part of our December presentations. Final question. You worked uh, with these pinheads in the Treasury Department for like three years. That would I would have committed suicide if I had to go in there every day and work with bureaucrats in the Treasury Department. But you seem to have liked it. A lot of people, including myself, are very worried about the American economy now because uh, Biden has no clue about anything. And we reported yesterday that, you know, gas prices are up to about $4.75 in California. $4.75. Um, and this hurts every working individual. You can pay 70, 75 bucks to fill up your tank. I mean, you're not getting a corresponding raise at work for that. So the economy itself, I'm not sure, I'm not confident that it will remain stable. How do you see it? I agree with you on that. You know, when Joe Biden came into office on January 20th, he inherited the fastest economic recovery from any crisis on record. That's what President Trump bequeathed to him. And over the last eight months, nine months, Bill, he has been very busy trying to destroy that economic recovery. What you have laid out is inflation. Every American is experiencing it. All you have to do is go to the grocery store or the gas station, regardless of where you are in the country, and you see those prices climbing. That is a direct result of the $6 trillion so far over the last 18 months that we have pumped down into the system. Now, when you have an emergency like we did last year, emergency level spending is totally logical. The government shut down the economy. Therefore, the government had to step into the breach and make sure the American people got through the acute period of the crisis. But the crisis is now over. The economy is wide open. And yet Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress want to continue this emergency level spending, including trillions of dollars more. That means that the system is awash in money. You have too many dollars chasing too few goods and services, and that means the price of everything is going up. And it impacts those at the lower end of the income scale, most of all minorities, working class, middle class folks. Their wages are not growing. Inflation is outstripping uh, that. And so everybody's paycheck is getting squeezed. And if the Democrats get their total desired spending, another about $5 trillion, you can imagine what inflation is going to look like. Yeah. This is going I mean, to look like child's play. It's, it's a direct, uh, the $5 trillion is not going to go for Build Back Better. Maybe 15 20% will. The other is just socialist programs, just giveaways. So people will vote for Democrats. That's what's happening. All right, Monica, very good as always. Thank you. Good to see you. And uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope, okay? You too. Always a pleasure, Bill. Everything is expensive these days, you know that. The government is printing trillions of dollars in consumer prices higher than ever. If the government continues its printing and spending, the dollar could continue its freefall 
and lose its coveted role as the world reserve currency. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But there are a few things you can do right now. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect your money, your retirement, your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. Start with a short phone call, and they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or put inside your 401k or IRA. So please call or text them right now. Tell them Bill O'Reilly sent you. Call 877-444-GOLD, 877-444-GOLD, or text GOLD to 65532. Again, that's 877-444-GOLD, or text GOLD to 65532. California, which deserves what it gets, now paying the highest gas prices ever, $4.39 regular. On average, the national regular is $3.18. Okay? The national regular is up 45% from this time last year. California is bigger than that. Okay? It's a bigger rise. Now, why so bad in California? Two reasons. 51, excuse me, 51 cent a gallon tax on each, each gallon. 51 cents goes to Sacramento. Not only that, but California's cap and trade program, all right, targets refineries and slaps another 14 cents a gallon so that um, other states don't have to pay. So 51 and 14 is 65 cents a gallon in California for everybody there that other states don't have to pay. You guys deserve what you get because you're electing far-left progressive people who don't want you to drive for global warming reasons. All right. Um, South of the border, apparently the Mexican army has broken up that 400-person caravan heading for the border. You know we have record um, intrusion on the border. It's going to be 2 million people the fiscal year under Joe Biden come in here illegally, two million that are apprehended. You can imagine there's another million or so that aren't. So this is just a catastrophe. And we have a situation where California is again impacted because of this stuff. And I'm gonna get now to my guest who has been patiently um, waiting Uh, to talk to us a week from today is the California recall of Governor Gavin Newsom. One week from today. Now, the polls uh, out of the L.A. Times and things like that are fake. If you look at the methodology, you can see it's like 15, 20 points to the left. So they're asking people to the left, left left-wingers, what they're going to do on recall day. What do you think you're going to get? Okay. It by other accounts, a very tight race, and anything could happen. Ruben Navarrete is an honest guy, all right? He is a newspaper columnist, works for the Washington Post Writers Group. It is a podcast, Ruben in the Center. We've known him for years. Um, he tells you what he thinks in a fact-based way. So 
Can you name one problem, Ruben, and we appreciate you coming on, one social problem that Governor Newsom has solved or partially solved in his tenure? Just one. Bill O'Reilly, so good to be with you again, my friend. I'll tell you, I, I can't come up with one. It's difficult. I come up with many more areas where the governor has failed. He explains his difficulty and the difficulty he's having with all groups, including Latinos in California, Democrats and independents as well. I think if you uh, wanted to go, say, in the realm of education, you could make the argument that by keeping the schools closed, he kept uh, students safe for um, 18 months. I would challenge the argument and say that actually he was doing that to kowtow to teachers unions, which run the Democratic Party and, and therefore the state of California. Hispanics are going to loom large, Hispanic voters, in whether Newsom survives or not. Has he done anything outside of COVID? Because COVID, look, the guy uh, shut down the economy in California, okay, and then he did this and then he did that. So I understand both points of view there, but I don't understand right. why he hasn't solved any social problems, not education, not crime, not homelessness, not cost of living, gas prices are yeah. crazy. He hasn't done any of that. So working yeah. class Hispanic voters are going to make a break up. How do you think they're going to go? I think they're going to go a long way toward breaking him. All the polls show, even the polls you talked about, the fake polls coming out of the Los Angeles Times and elsewhere, uh, saying that the gap is closing and Newsom's in good shape. Even those polls bills say that Latinos lead the pack in terms of all the groups out there and wanting to get rid of Gavin Newsom. Nobody can, no matter how hard you spin it, you can't do away with the fact uh, that Latinos don't like Newsom. He's never connected with them. He's never connected with them. And I think that to answer your question, one of the reasons he's gotten this far, despite having not solved any social problems, this is a deep blue state where you don't need a single Republican vote to pass anything. And he takes full advantage of that. He's gotten really lazy and complacent and entitled. And that's the wrong place to be. All right. So Hispanics, in your opinion, Ruben, and you obviously live among them in San Diego yep. and tons of them. They're more likely to throw Newsom out, but then Larry Elder would probably be governor, and he's a very, very right-wing guy. Will that have any effect in the vote? Yeah. Well, see, I've known Larry for 27 years. He and I used to host radio shows uh, for KBC together many years ago. I know him to be a really kind of good guy. Uh, I like him. Uh, I disagree with him on many issues, but he doesn't fit the caricature that the liberal media in California is trying so hard to draw of him. Uh, so I think he will probably do probably better than expected with Latinos because people expect him not to do very well at all. He'll do better than that. Uh, but the main problem for Newsom is he can't, at this late date, connect with this constituency. They might just stay home, Bill. That's really the issue. They don't have to defect to Elder. They don't have to vote Republican. No, they can, just vote, they can just check one. They don't have to check the second box they, about who you right. want. They can, go fishing. they can go fishing and not even, not even go vote uh, because he hasn't connected with them. Right. So that's the apathy now has become the big question. OK, so tomorrow, uh, Vice President Harris goes to San Francisco. This looks a waste of time to me. San Francisco is Newsom's base. He used to be the mayor there. Um, you know, who's going to come out to see Harris say Newsom's great. Right. I don't think this changes any minds, does it? It does not. You know, California is really 12 states in one by geography. I live in the San Diego area, but I was born and raised in central California, which is very conservative, conservative farmland. There are many conservative Mexican-Americans out there who vote Democrat, but they're conservative Democrat. They will vote for the right Republican, and they have shown that. 
And that never gets covered, Bill. That's never covered by the liberal media. They pretend that doesn't exist, you know? But uh, that kind of constituency, Kamala Harris and and Gavin Newsom just don't speak to. They know, don't know those people. Yeah, They've I don't see this. But then, then uh, Biden goes early next week. So this is, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> no. Biden goes down and, you know, uh, to speak to uh, Californians to keep Newsom in there. But Biden is so shaky at this point that he, he could say anything. I mean, it, they got to be nervous just about Biden showing up and saying anything, correct? Yeah. Here's what they're doing wrong, Bill. They're targeting people who are already going to vote for Newsom. When you bring Harris and Biden out, you're speaking to the converted, the folks who are already in your camp. You need to go after the folks who are wavering, the folks who, like in my case, I voted for Gavin Newsom in 2018. I didn't want anything to do with the Republican Party in California in 2018. They've dug themselves into a big grave on immigration. But at the same time, he lost me. He lost me in those you know, in almost three years. They should be speaking to people like me saying, how do we get you back? No, they're speaking to the, the diehard dark blue voters they already have. Now. In the state of California, you heard my monologue on Joe Biden, backed up with facts every step of the way. The folks, even if they won't admit it, because a lot of people don't want to admit that their vote was poorly thought out, they just won't admit it. But most people know that Biden is a problem here. Does California know that? About Biden or about Newsom? About Biden. Uh, yeah, I think increasingly the whole country does, and even the California Democrats do. You will hear, look, they're grateful to be rid of Donald Trump. They're glad Joe Biden is there. It's very hard, though, to find anybody who will defend his performance on Afghanistan or many other issues in which he's failing. And that's, there's a parallel there with Gavin Newsom, right? I don't find Latino Democrats who will defend Newsom and saying, oh, he's doing a great job. All they'll do is play the fear game and say, you've got to keep the Republicans out. Larry Elder is terrible. You know, and again, I know the man. He doesn't fit that caricature. So they left me flat. They're not making a good argument as to why we should keep Gavin Newsom. Yeah, because I'm trying to figure out if there's any hope that California might come back to the middle. So that you have now two things in play. You have California paying an enormous amount of money just to put a gallon of gas in your car. Right. I mean, if you're right. a worker and you're already right. paying high housing sure. costs. You bet. Right. Mm -hmm. And now you're filling up the tank to the tune of $70. Right. And and there's one man respond. Well, in California, it's the whole progressive wing that's responsible for it. But na nationally, Biden's responsible for it. He attacked on the first day of office, the fossil fuel industry, and then wham, you saw what happened. Um, so I'm trying to think if there's any hope that California may stop being yeah. the citadel of progressivism. And we will know Next Tuesday, when the recall yeah. vote is, we'll know if Californians right. are coming back a little or are they going to stay out in left-wing Loonville? Last word. I love this question because if California does make it back to the purple center, it'll be Latinos who drag it there, conservative Latinos who go there, and, and not white Republicans. They don't have enough juice in California. It's going to be Latinos who take them there, and that's going to be very interesting to watch in the years to come. All right, Ruben. Thanks for helping us out. The podcast again, Ruben in the center. So I want everybody to check that out. We really appreciate your time. Ruben. Thanks again. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day, and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before, and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. Okay. You may know the name Martin Duvard. You know that name? Does that ring a bell? Well, he is my co-author on the Killing series, all 10 of the Killing books, O'Reilly Duvard. Killing books are the most successful nonfiction book series of all time. 19 million copies of our books in print. Okay, 19 million. That's a lot. And uh, what people don't know is that Dugard, when he's not working with me, writes his own books. And he has a new one out called Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights, World War II book. In the past, Marty's written The Explorers about uh, Africa. Uh, He has written The Last Voyage of Columbus. He's written a Civil War book, Grant Lee, Sherman Davis, all that. Uh, now, again, his new book is Taking Paris. It's out this week. And I talked to my partner yesterday. Roll the tape. So, Degard, this uh, City of Lights, uh, the epic battle for the City of Lights, going to be a big bestseller. You know why? Because my name is on your cover. My name with an endorsement. Yeah. I mean, forget about Churchill. I know you got Churchill on the cover. You got a little Eiffel Tower thing, but... But my name's on a cover. Man, that's going to sell. You know, um, I read your book. It's uh, for anybody who likes history, World War II history. And, and, you know, if you read Killing Patton and Dugard is co-author of me uh, on Killing Patton, uh, you know that uh, France was a very intense part of World War II. But a lot of people just don't know the the nuts and bolts. What was the most um, fascinating thing for you that you found out writing this book? I think it was the rise of the resistance. I, going into the book, I, I didn't know much about the French resistance, and I didn't know that it was just an organic group of people, people with no military skills, no weaponry, who trained themselves to be saboteurs, to train themselves to defeat the Germans uh, at the risk of their lives. I mean, I, I detail several of, the, of the, the public executions where German soldiers would stand 10 feet away in, in a firing squad and shoot these people dead, and all they wanted was, uh, was freedom and liberty. Yeah, that Klaus Barbie boy, that Nazi uh, Gestapo guy, he was in charge of tracking down a lot of those resistance people, and he was successful, unfortunately, in a lot of it. And that's just harrowing. I wanted to ask you, the Nazis treated the French and the Western Europeans a lot differently than they treated the Eastern Europeans, the Poles, Ukrainians. Why, why was that, do you think? Well, Hitler saw Paris as the, as the crown jewel of his new Nazi empire. And he wanted to make sure the people of Paris felt appreciated. When he went into Warsaw, he leveled the city. He, he publicly executed tons of people. He, 
Uh, literally, if you were an intellectual, if you were a communist, if you were gay, you were dead. Uh, and then they, they knocked down cathedrals. They, they just basically destroyed the country. Whereas with Paris, the, the Parisians made it an open city. So the Germans literally just marched in. Hitler himself toured Paris afterwards, looking at all the priceless works of art. And then he plundered the city, uh, taking a lot of those works of art back with him to Germany. But he largely wanted to make sure Paris was the vacation spot for all of his soldiers um, during their leave from the front. So you would have Nazi soldiers go to Paris, take the train to Paris so direct from the front, walk around the city with cameras around their necks and, and really enjoy the city like tourists. Yeah, so he didn't, and he did the same thing in Rome as well. Uh, he didn't destroy Rome. Um, so when the Germans who were at the front fighting, they needed a break, they went to Paris and that led to a rise of a lot of collaboration with the brothels and, the, you know, what soldiers uh, unfortunately sometimes do. Uh, you don't get into that too much, but you did say there was a lot of collaboration between some French and the Nazis, whereas there was the resistance and the collaborators. Now, after, after the Nazis got kicked out of there, the French went after the collaborators with a vengeance, correct? You know, it, it was kind of unequal because, yes, they did, first of all. You know, women who were, who were prostitutes or who, you know, 50,000 women in Paris gave birth to a, a German child during the war. So it's not like it was an isolated incident. And what's, what's strange is that during the war, nobody talk, talked about being a member of the resistance because that could get you killed. But after the war, so a lot of people are too afraid to be part of the resistance, but, and they would prefer to be a collaborator because that would get them more food, that would get them maybe a better place to sleep at night. Right. After the war, a lot of these people all of a sudden began claiming that they were part of the resistance when in fact they had nothing to do with it. Right. And it was a uh, pretty harrowing uh, civil situation. So you must have been lonely writing this book alone uh, without, without me and my uh, brilliant presence, correct? <laughs> you know, you, you laugh, but it's actually really true because after 11 years of back and forth three times a week on the phone with you, to actually write a book and to not have anybody to say, hey, what do you think about this? How do we fix this? How do we make it better? What should we add to it? All the little the things, you know, or, you know, one of the things I tried to do to make it, to recreate our work uh, situation, it was to read each page out loud, you know, before I would kind of, you know, print it out, read it out loud, but I don't have your voice. So when <laughs> I miss the O'Reilly voice reading the pages out loud. Oh yeah, sure. But it is true that you are the most successful nonfiction co-author of all time, along, along with me, I say humbly. Um, Degard and I also finished our next killing book called, uh, Killing the Killer is a Secret War Against Terrorism. And it was supposed to come out in uh, November, but because of COVID, the printing plants could literally not print the book. So it'll be out early 2022. Now that book was so hard to write, and I think you would agree, because you, you were weeping telling me how hard it was to write and research, because we, we literally got we literally got classified information that we had to vet. We had to vet it. And I mean, I know I'm going to wind up in, in federal prison. You'll probably skate. You'll say, as O'Reilly did it. But there's so much, so much information in killing the killers that nobody has any clue about. And it was a grueling process. And I'm, 
I'm glad it's over, but I'd like to get that book out as soon as I can get it out. You know, uh, first of all, you and I are usually uh, very, very simpatico, and, it's, and, and we're never uh, getting at each other. But we we got a little testy in this book. It was there was a lot of pressure, um, but also too some of the people that you know through your influence that we were able to to interview for that book. I mean, these the background we got from these people at the you know, I'm not going to reveal the level, but I mean, these were people who knew what was going on. They know where the bodies are buried and to be able to interview these people and really get a, a sense of uh, what the world of terror is like was fantastic. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, was, it is stunning the amount of information. This was the most difficult book to write. Would you agree with that? The most difficult killing book? Well, you know, the, first of all, the terrorists obviously aren't going to share information with us. And so that makes the research hard. And then the intelligence community obviously isn't going to share intelligence with us. So that makes the research hard. So basically, you know, I had to dig harder than I've ever had to dig from a research point of view. And then you you were trying to really craft a very, very tight narration. So we just, we trimmed it down. We made it as fast as possible. And it was just, it was just this, this constant uh, refining of the book that made for a very uh, high pressure writing environment. But yeah. in the end, it's worth it. You know, the readers are going to I think people will be stunned uh, when they see how actually bin Laden, al-Baghdadi, Soleimani, how ISIS was defeated, exactly how, exactly, precisely how. I think they're going to be stunned. So anyway, good luck with uh, the epic battle for the City of Lights. Martin Dugard, Penguin is the publisher. Uh, O'Reilly is on the cover, as he should be. All right, Marty. <laughs> Have fun out there in California. Don't buy too much gas. You know, it's like $80 a gallon now. <laughs> it's, it's good to see your smiling face. <laughs> Catch up soon. Okay, so I hope everybody will check out Taking Paris, the epic battle for the city of lights. Hey, this is Vivek Ramaswamy. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine, enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe to The Truth Podcast today on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so here's the final thought of the day. There's a lady mad at me in Texas. I'm not going to tell you her name, but she's mad. Um, O'Reilly, you pretend to be unaware of how political the CDC is. The vast majority of political contributions made by employees of the CDC have gone to Democrats. Were you aware that the CDC has put new policies in place which effectively create a tiered system of diagnosis, which means unvaccinated people will find it much easier to be diagnosed with COVID than the vaccinated. Were you? Okay, look, I know no matter what I say, the anti-vaxxers are not going to get vaccinated. I know that. But Leslie, it is my job to report the truth to you. The CDC may be politicized. You could be right, okay? But it is the only authoritative body from the federal government that distributes information that we the people need. Nowhere else does that happen. 
If there is fraud in the CDC, if they cook the numbers, that is a felony. So I have to report the authoritative numbers. And I look at all 50 states and the overwhelming evidence is that if you are vaccinated, you are safer than if you are not vaccinated. And it's my job to tell you that. Now, you remember last November, I told you Donald Trump was not going to be president four or five days after the vote. I lost support. I lost premium members. Oh, he is. He's there. I knew he wasn't coming back, and I reported it. Same thing with the vaccine. The only way COVID will be defeated in any country is for the vast majority of its citizenry to be vaxxed. And those who will not get the vax, you have a right not to get it in this country. But you are putting yourself at grave risk. And that's the truth. Thank you for watching No Spin News. We will see you again tomorrow.